The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in October 2008. Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John Von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. Today we welcome the Broadway producer Tom Viertel. Tom and his partners Richard Frankel, Mark Routh, and Steve Baruch have produced a wide range of plays, musicals, on and off Broadway, even around the world. Current shows you can see on Broadway include Hairspray, Gypsy, and Young Frankenstein. Too many productions to name them all, but some that you may want to take note of during the course of the interview. The producers, Sweeney Todd, the recent revival, the revival of Company just a year or so ago, The Sound of Music, Swing, Penn & Teller off-Broadway, Mnemonic, The Cocktail Hour, Love Letters, Song of Singapore. Tom Vertel is also a member of the Executive Committee and the Board of Governors of the Broadway League and Chairman of the Board of Eugene O'Neill Theatre Center in Connecticut. Tom, welcome. Thank you. Nice to be here. I mentioned those current shows, Hairspray, Gypsy, Young Frankenstein, three big shows on Broadway. Hairspray is going to be closing right after the first of the year. A good run. It'll be more than 2,600 performances. It's opened in 2002. Why close it now? It seems like it's doing very well. Well, the, the same reason we would close any show, which is it isn't doing well enough. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I, it's, I think maybe some of that's to do with a little bit of general weakening in the theater market, although that's just beginning to show up. But, you know, every show has a lifespan. And uh, I think Hairspray is getting to the end of its. Um, it's sad. We have loved working on Hairspray, and we've worked on it all over the world. It's played in Japan and in Korea, and it's playing now very successfully in London. Uh, we've toured it throughout the United States. We've had productions in Las Vegas and Toronto. Um, and it'll have a life way beyond the Broadway production that'll be quite substantial, I would think. Uh, we expect that it will be done, you know, in high schools all over the country. Uh, we're actually doing an interesting thing with Hairspray um, in England. Uh, I think we're going to start allowing it to be done in schools, which you wouldn't normally expect to see until after the main production was at an end. Um, but in this instance, uh, we think it will actually help to build the brand. And uh, we think there's just an incredibly loyal audience for the show. Uh, and we're sorry to see it closing, but those that that does ultimately happen to every show. I read the figure two hundred sixty-five million dollars, two hundred sixty-five million dollars in uh, in gross uh, proceeds on the New York run alone, not counting mm-hmm. all the other ones. That's a pretty good return on the investment, I guess. Well, it, it it's a little bit deceptive because, of course, every week, unlike a movie, you have operating costs, so that grosses by themselves don't really tell the story. You know, these shows are big enough so that they could gross five or six hundred thousand dollars in a week and still lose money. Um, because of the operating costs that you have to pay actors and advertising and uh, authors who've licensed the material and so forth. So uh, the gross by itself doesn't tell you much. What what I think does tell you is that there has been a very long run and that that couldn't be sustained if losses were you know mounting. The reason other shows don't gross that much is because they had to close before they could. Hairspray certainly had a successful movie, one of the more successful film musicals of of many years, and you also had a film of the producers that came out. Mm-hmm. How much does the life of the show get affected by, by the film? Well, it's an interesting thing. Uh, when we first started in this business back in the mid-'80s, uh, we were of the view, and everybody was, that uh, a major media event, a movie or a big television movie of your show, could kill the show. 
uh, when when uh, uh, when we negotiate with authors, we frequently negotiate for extended holdbacks of that type of material, so you can't find yourself confronted with a movie while you're still trying to build your brand. Once upon a time, films even used to get shot and not released until until the show closed. That's right, uh, and we actually had the experience of having a show killed by a movie we produced. I think our third or fourth show was Driving Miss Daisy, uh, which became a very, very popular movie, ultimately won the Academy Award. And the show had been running on Broadway, uh, off-Broadway. It was never on Broadway, but it ran off-Broadway for about three and a half years. And toward the end of that run, the movie was released. And within weeks, the show had no audience at all. Everybody went to see the movie. They felt they'd had the experience, and that was the end of it. And so we took that experience forward, you know, 20 years, uh, and and were under the same impression until the movies of Rent and Phantom of the Opera were made while the shows were still running, and instead of killing the shows, gave the shows a tremendous boost. Um, And... From that time forward, the shows that have been made into movies in general have gotten a boost from it, whether it's Hairspray uh, or Legally Blonde. Um, And and the producers got a small boost from it, not much of a boost, but it doesn't seem to have much to do with how good the movies are. A lot of it, I think, has to do with, you know, I keep going back to this notion of brand building, which is sort of an ugly term. But when a movie company comes into the marketplace now with a movie like Hairspray, it'll come in with a 60 or $70 million ad campaign, nothing far greater than anything that we could possibly afford. And the reignition of the brand, if you're still running five, six, seven years later, as was the case with Rent, with Phantom, it was almost 20 years later, with um, uh, Hairspray, it was, you know, five years later. Uh, That kind of reminding the public that the brand is exciting and fun, uh, it, it was, I think, a tremendous boost to all of those shows in a way that we hadn't at all anticipated when the first of the movies came out. By the time Hairspray came out, we had very high hopes that it would happen to us, too, and it did. Does it make any difference to the Broadway production when, in the movie version, the cast of the movie is essentially the Broadway version, like the producers and Rent, or when it's totally different, like Hairspray was different than the Broadway cast? Does that make any difference at all? I I don't think I would have laid it down to that specifically, although that's true. what, What you say is so, that they were the cast's and Rent and and the producers, and they weren't in Hairspray. I don't necessarily think that that's the dividing line. Um, Obviously, the movies of Rent and the producers weren't nearly as well-received as the movie of Hairspray. The movie of Phantom wasn't particularly well-received either. Uh, And and they all had substantial effects on their their Broadway counterparts. Uh, Certainly, Rent and Phantom got tremendous boosts. Uh, so and producers didn't. So I don't know that you can make the case quite that way. Actually, from our point of view, the most interesting thing that came out of um, the the experience of doing the movie of Hairspray was that because John Travolta played Edna, it opened up, particularly in London, casting opportunities that had never existed because Edna had always been played by uh, a, a, you know a f- f- truly uh, fat rather than in a fat suit kind of person uh, and somebody who tended to be uh, at least to come off as being gay uh, when we went to um, uh, London on the heels of the Travolta appearance uh, in the movie we were able to get Michael Ball who was you know a, 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 a true uh, star of the London stage uh, to come in and play the role I'm not, I'm not at all sure he would have 
I, I say this without ever having talked to him about it, but I would be surprised if he would have been so easy to, uh, so excited about the role, uh, if if uh, if Travolta had never actually played it. And and who is not fat? So he. Exactly. Yep. Michael is none of the things that, you know, people who knew Hairspray had come to associate with the role. And uh, it, was a, it was a, you know, tremendous boost for the show. But that show also came on the heels of the release in England. The show was released in early July in England, and we opened in October. So the movie was top of mind for the whole London theater going public and a lot of people who don't go to the theater, and it's benefited immensely from uh, from that. Sort of corollary to this, another one of your current Broadway shows is Gypsy. In that case, there were a lot of people who were saying, as the show was being mounted, how can you do Gypsy again on Broadway? It's only been four or five years at that point since the last one. So whereas a movie can be seen as helping, the question is, were you... You were clearly going against conventional wisdom about you can't do another revival so fast. Yeah, there's no doubt that that was against conventional wisdom. And, in fact, the show had opened at City Center, and the New York Times hadn't particularly liked it. So we were going against a couple of significant pieces of conventional wisdom in producing the show. I think producing Gypsy was mostly about being in love uh, without regard to the kinds of considerations that you're – suggesting and that I just suggested, we just were in love with the show and felt that the idea of not showing that show, which had only been seen in City Center for three weeks, to the to the theater-going public would be criminal. Um, and we had many conversations about how, you know, sort of intellectually stupid an idea it was, uh, but we just felt that it was... Reg- and, and this is to some degree the way theater producers are. You know, you follow your heart finally. Uh, however smart or stupid it turns out to be. In that instance, despite the fact that the show had been on Broadway five years before, despite the fact that the Times hadn't liked it, uh, we produced the show and it's done spectacularly well. And, of course, the Times came and turned around, which is the only experience I've ever had of that. Inevitably, you're not as we know from the producers, putting your own money in the show. We know that's a bad (laughs) choice. How did you sell Gypsy at that point to your investors? It's it's well known that you have a fairly large pool of investors that you work with, perhaps at at smaller levels than, than many other people might. We do. We we in, we have investors whom we typically ask to put up $10,000. We have a sizable pool of people who've either actually invested with us or have expressed an interest in doing it. And so nobody is in a position of losing huge amounts of money if the show doesn't work. And we pitched Gypsy to them as honestly as we could. We said, we're completely in love. Patty Lupone is amazing. The cast is amazing. The production with Arthur Lawrence at the helm is revelatory. And the show's been on Broadway five years earlier, and the New York Times didn't like it, and we're going to produce it anyway, and we hope you come along. But we didn't keep any of our thinking from our investors, and we never do. Enough people agreed to do it to allow us to produce the show. We did spread the risk around. We weren't the only producers of Gypsy, and uh, that's true of virtually every show we do. So our position in Gypsy is a, a, a sizable one, but not so big a lion's share as to expose our, you know, entire investment pool to, to uh, you know, the risks of it. 
On the other hand, uh, because we had a lot of other producers, there were a lot of other people besides our investment pool willing and interested in taking this risk. And I think all of them deserve a lot of credit. This is it's it's different. Every show, the reason you produce every show is to some extent being in love, but each of the shows have other characteristics and things to think about. Gypsy was, without question, one of the most unlikely shows to produce in the sense of its having been on Broadway so recently and in the face of an important, not good review. Um, But as I say, love conquered all in that instance. We talked a moment ago about shows that are currently in production on Broadway having movies made during the run of the show, like Hairspray, like Rent. What about the original source material when it was a movie? Hairspray was a movie originally. Young Frankenstein was a movie originally. Most people probably did not see the 1959 version of Mary Martin in The Sound of Music due to the revival. Most people probably know the movie version with uh, Julie Andrews. The Producers was a movie before it became a Broadway show. What effect does that have on your deciding to produce the show in the first place, coming from a movie? Is that, is that no, I don't think it has any effect. I, musicals in general have always come from another source. Uh, it's 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 unusual to have a musical that not unheard of by any means, but unusual to have a, a musical with no antecedents. Um, back in the days of Oklahoma and Carousel, the antecedents were often plays. Sometimes they were novels. Uh, today, they're more, much more often than anything else movies, and I take that to be so because it's a sort of two-hour story form. So it's relatively easy to see how a musical might be made out of it as opposed to, say, a novel. Um, and the, we, I think because there's a lot of money behind movies, we tend to tell our best stories in that form. So it's a, it's a, it's a, a very rich source of stories. Not all of them make musicals by any means, and there would be a good deal of disagreement if you sat with a panel of producers about what makes a good musical. But for my money... The, the the critical ingredients of a musical are not necessarily present in a lot of musicals. And uh, I think where you find good ones, where you find movies that really lend themselves to a good musical, The Producers is a classic example, and so is Hairspray, uh, it, there's, there's no reason to shirk from that at all. On the other hand, we don't go mining movies as a source for musicals more than we go looking for them in books or we go looking for them in television shows uh, or anything else. And occasionally we actually uh, happen upon something that is entirely original and that doesn't bother us either. Um, I, I, I do think that movies are a particularly good way uh, to organize a story. I mean, some of them are. We use the word original. Let's talk about your origins. How did you get started? Where, where, where did you grow up? What did you study in school? How did you get interested in theater to begin with? Well, I have to go back long before me to give you a cogent answer to uh-huh. that question. My grandfather uh, was a general contractor. He started out to be a school teacher, didn't like it at all, and went into a business with uh, his father, who had been a cabinet maker in Russia, but who had become a house painter. Uh, in America because he couldn't find work as a cabinet maker. And he was painting apartments for a lot of landlords. And he was a relatively timid man. This is my great-grandfather. And hadn't collected a lot of the money that was owed to him. So my grandfather, who was anything but timid, came into the business, collected all the money, and thought to himself, I have a lot of money now. I should get into some business where there isn't too much competition. And at that time, which was shortly after the turn of the 20th century, the business that wasn't too much competition was the building of movie theaters, which had just been invented, basically. 
So he went around and convinced um, Mr. Albee to let him build a movie theater for him. He had no experience doing it. He was just a bold young man who went off and got him to do it. So he wound up building a movie theater for Albee that cost Albee about 80% of what he had expected it to cost. And as a result, he became a sort of fair-haired boy in the business of building movie theaters. And in the course of building many, many movie theaters, over 200 movie theaters, he built a number of legitimate theaters, including the Mark Hallinger and the Broadway Theater uh, and, and several theaters that have been, you know, gone under the wrecking ball, you know, in the years since. Um, One of the theaters that he built was built for an impresario named Earl Carroll. He was a competitor of Flo Ziegfeld. There was uh, Ziegfeld's Follies and Earl Carroll's Vanities. And Ziegfeld had just built an enormous theater for himself, and Earl Carroll felt very pressured by it, came to my grandfather and said, I want you to build me a theater bigger than Ziegfeld's. And so he did. He built a 3,000-seat theater on the corner of 7th Avenue and 50th Street, where uh, Barclays is now, former Lehman Brothers site. Um, And by the time – it was in the middle of the Depression, and by the time the building was finished, the Earl Carroll was broke and couldn't pay for it. So my grandfather wound up with this building on his hands, couldn't figure out what to do with it, finally decided that he would take out all the table – all the theater seating and put in tables and chairs and opened the largest theater nightclub in the history of the world at that point. It was called the French Casino, and it was an immense success. And my mother and father courted during that period of time and became completely enamored of theater. They had already been theater goers. My mother had wanted to be an actress. My father had wanted to be a playwright and actually wrote a play that was produced on Broadway. Uh, But I think the French casino sort of brought the whole thing to a head. My father went on to become a novelist. But we grew up, my brother and sister and I, as passionate theater goers from the time we were little kids. I had never had any particular expectation that I would work in the theater, but I loved going to the theater. I, I remember seeing virtually everything that was produced in one year in the mid-50s. Um, I went into the family real estate business, which was a business descended from my grandfather's uh, general contracting business, but which by then owned property and managed property, and was very content in that business for 20 years. In 1984, I took my family out to the Olympics in Los Angeles. By then, my younger brother had migrated to Los Angeles to try to write screenplays. That hadn't worked so well for him, and he had become a theater critic out there, and a very good one. And you're referring to your your brother Jack. My brother Jack, yeah. And uh, when we arrived, uh, Jack said to me, you got to see these two guys. They do comedy and magic. They're playing in a 50-seat room above a discotheque. I gave them a great review, but nothing is happening for them. So I went to see Penn & Teller and fell off my chair. Asked them if they were interested in coming to New York because I thought, well, I could actually produce something. And um, they, they told me that there was this fellow who had bought an option to bring them to New York, but they didn't know what he was planning to do, and perhaps I should go back and meet him. And so I did. That was Richard Frankel, who was at the time the managing director of Circle Repertory Company, which was a quite prestigious uh, regional theater in New York, producing mainly the works of Lanford Wilson. And Richard and I, and my cousin Steve Baruch, who was also in our uh, real estate business, made a little deal to produce Penn and Teller. Richard knew how to produce a show, which we did not. We knew a lot of people in the real estate business who had made quite a lot of money in the mid-'80s who we thought would be interested in playing in the theater world just for the fun of it. 
And that was how Penn & Teller got produced. And the three of us and Richard's assistant from that time, Mark Routh, have remained together uh, ever since in a, in a business that's grown quite substantially. Well, we should say, when you produced Penn & Teller, it was not that you splashily landed on Broadway with these two guys. You were in, if I recall, the Downstairs Theater at the West Side Arts on 43rd Street. Probably had 199 seats, something like that. Yeah, it was about 250, okay. 220. And uh, clearly they were a hit. They caught mm-hmm. on here. So what was the next step? How did you – How did? because in that case, there was a show. You saw it. You wanted it to see it happen. At what point did you say, hey, we're now producers. What do we do next? Well, once we knew that Penn & Teller was a hit, uh, which we knew because Frank Rich kept coming back and bringing his children, so we knew that somebody significant – he was the critic of the Times at the time uh, – actually loved the show and so did audiences. We began to look around for the next thing to produce. Uh, One of the things that occurred to us was to look again in Los Angeles. And the next thing we produced was a completely improvised evening. It was the only time I've ever seen an evening that was truly improvised from beginning to end every night. Paul Sills, who was the uh, father of modern improv men, started the Second City and the Compass Players, had left all of those companies long behind and was in Los Angeles putting on an evening of improv and playing his mother's games. I don't know how deeply you want to go into this, but Paul's mother was a woman named Viola Spolin who had invented a series of theater games to teach children in Chicago. And the games had become the basis for modern improv. That's how modern improv got started. Paul and many other improvisers had been using the games as a basis for creating comedy skits. And he had tired of doing it commercially. So on Friday and Saturday nights at a little theater off Melrose, he was putting on evenings of improv based on the games. And he would actually get up and coach the people who were improvising. He would sort of lurk behind them and give them directions uh, that would pull them away from trying to make comedy and toward... During the performance. Yes, right, as as they were speaking. And it was a fascinating thing to watch. And improvisers are a a strange breed, and this is all all my own opinion. I'm sure the people who are actually involved in that world are a lot more knowledgeable than I am. But my impression of it was that a lot of people who are brilliant at improvising aren't necessarily thought of as brilliant actors and uh, or their acting skills don't translate to written scripts in quite the same way. So a lot of these thoroughly brilliant people were doing day work and voiceovers and keeping themselves sort of alive and kicking in Los Angeles but not having a very good time at it. And they would come down Friday and Saturday nights and they would play these games. And it was astonishing. And they would be joined by people like Richard Libertini and Robin Williams who would come in and do, you know, just whatever game they were supposed to play. And it was just overwhelming. Audiences were on the floor. So we thought this would be absolutely wonderful. And we brought it to New York. And it was doing it eight times a week rather than two times a week is tremendously taxing. Uh, in terms of innovation and uh, all of the all of the uh, of, of stresses of improvising, um, the show was wildly inconsistent. There were wonderful, wonderful moments every night, and then other stuff that didn't land. And the mantra of that show got to be, "You should have been here last night." 
Uh, and by the time it was done, it wasn't successful. We had done some interesting things with it, uh, none of which had finally worked, and so it didn't work. After that, we moved two consecutive shows uh, from not-for-profit theaters to uh, to commercial venues. The first of them uh, was uh, Frankie and Johnny and the Claire de Lune, and the second was Driving Miss Daisy. At least I think that's the way it went. It may be the other way around. And they were both successful. Driving Miss Daisy was an immense success and spawned a national tour uh, that was a, a huge uh, success. Julie Harris playing uh, Miss Daisy. And it was, in each instance, an incredibly productive education for the four of us in aspects of producing. Now, we weren't making the art in any of these four productions. Penn and Teller was done to a point before we got hold of it. We added a director to it because we felt it needed some polishing. And the result of that combination of Penn and Teller and the director, Art Wolf, ultimately allowed the show to become all that it could be, which was an astonishing evening. I don't believe that I've ever seen an evening of magic that had the kind of theatrical arc that that evening had. Audiences came out of that show believing that they had had a truly emotional experience. They came out laughing and in tears. And we're looking at it now from, you know, 23 years on, so the power of seeing these guys as unknowns is not we we now know them from television and their performances and it it was it was pretty mind blowing having it seen was, a preview of it uh, so even before critics to, to stumble upon those guys was really something it was mind blowing and the show just got better and better they had an acute and they still have an acute sense of what will make an audience moved either to laughter or tears or whatever uh, and astonished and I think having them work with art helped to hone that. Uh, But in each of the four instances, we were learning about marketing because these were shows that had built-in audiences at their regional theaters where they started, but they had to be marketed. We learned about that. Uh, We learned about managing shows that are in long runs because aside from Sills and Company, which ran, I guess, probably four or five months, uh, the other shows ran for extended periods of time. And that involved everything from maintaining relationships that are good with the casts to replacing the casts from time to time. Driving Miss Daisy went through several casts um, to to uh, uh, figuring out about publicity and, uh, and, and keeping the show fresh and in front of the public in as many ways as possible. We were learning aspects of producing without necessarily taking on the business of creating art. And in your case, still keeping a day job up at the uh, real estate office. All during that period of time, this was a hobby for Steve and myself. Richard and Mark, it was full-time. They were general managing these shows, and they were working very hard to keep the shows in proper financial order. From Steve and my point of view, it was truly a hobby. We would come down to New York a couple times a week. We would try to figure out which ads to run, the four of us, uh, and what other things could be done. We would get reports from our press agents and our... Uh, advertising agency, um, we would, you know, try to deal creatively and cogently with cast replacements and that type of thing. But we were running a real estate business, and that was our that was our principal business. Uh, so, so it was a casual education in a way, but it was absolutely an education. There is no doubt that the things that we learned in those days we still apply, 
And one of the things that I think is true of our office is that we have ways of doing things that we hew to pretty carefully that we think promote harmony in the theater uh, and sales of tickets. And we depart from those things only very, very carefully. So a lot of those systems were being learned and ingrained in us ways of treating people and ways of dealing with situations that do recur in theater. A lot of situations are unique, but some situations recur regularly. And I think it was a tremendously valuable uh, education. I dwell on this a little bit because I don't think it's available to producers today. Off-Broadway has become so expensive on a commercial level, and the risks are so large that most shows of the sort of the type of uh, show that Driving Miss Daisy or Frankie and Johnny, the, impl- the the sort of impulses to skip off Broadway and just go to Broadway, because for an extra you know few hundred thousand dollars, you can have the advantage of a much larger house, a much bigger advertising budget, uh, and a better shot at competing with all of the Broadway attractions. So this opportunity to produce shows for, you know, 175000 to $400,000 and to make them work financially, to build our investor base because the shows were successful is something that tragically isn't really available to producers today. And so young producers coming up uh, have to latch on to a much bigger musical where somebody else is running the show and try to... Um, learn by sitting at the meeting every week what's going on. But as as thorough as those meetings can sometimes be, they're a fraction of what goes on on a show, and it's you're much better served by running the show. And for most producers, that's young producers, that's out of reach because of the enormous costs of Broadway. As you talk about this learning, you've said that you were taking shows that had been first produced elsewhere. Mm-hmm. When, what was the show where you said, <laughs> we're going to start this from scratch? Well, there, there probably were earlier ones, but the one that really comes to mind was Song of Singapore in 1991. We had we'd started in 1985. The only thing we'd ever done on Broadway between then and 1993 was uh, uh, engagements of Penn and Teller on Broadway. We brought that show to what was then the Ritz, now the Walter Kerr Theater, the original off-Broadway show. We brought a second incarnation of it called the Refrigerator Tour to the O'Neill before it went out on tour. So we'd had some limited experience of Broadway, but it was a peculiar experience because Penn and Teller were not subject to exactly the same union rules that a a regular show would be subject to. So we learned something, but we didn't learn everything, uh, all all the things one really should know. We produced Song of Singapore in 1991. It was, it was, and I think remains, the only script we ever produced that came in over the transom. It, it literally arrived in the mail from four guys who were musicians who had written a musical for themselves to do. And it was a musical that was about uh, a band that was playing in Singapore right before the Japanese invasion. And they were playing in this seedy dive uh, and in walks this mystery woman who has amnesia, and it turns out she can sing. And it's the story of the five of them trying to get out of Singapore while the bar owner and the, you know, the various nefarious characters in Singapore keep thwarting their plans. It was a silly, charming, delightful show. And we thought, having had by then six years of experience off-Broadway, that it was never going to be appreciated by theater audiences by simply presenting it 
in a proscenium setting in a regular theater because it was just it didn't have the weight to do that. So we decided to create the bar and have everybody, the audience included, be part of the part of the show by sitting in this, you know, Chinese restaurant in effect. And we located what was then a Polish meeting hall down on Irving Place on uh, 15th Street. It's now actually quite a successful uh, alternative rock venue, but in those days it was a Polish war veteran meeting hall. And we rented the meeting hall. It was the first time we'd been in the theater business because we were really running the theater. We created a bar and hired a wonderful man to run the bar, uh, who I think is still running the bar there. We catered in food uh, so you could eat uh, you know, Singaporean food while you were sitting there. We had dancing uh, before the show and at intermission and on some occasions after the show. And then we would perform the show. We created a bandstand. The show took place basically on the bandstand because she was a singer and they were the band. And we hired wonderful musicians. The four guys who wrote the show were in the show, but there was a bigger band than just the four of them and had an absolute ball an absolute bull. It taught us a lot about uh, dramaturgy. It taught us a lot about creating art from scratch. Uh, Richard had had the advantage of doing a lot of that at Circle Rep, so he was not necessarily learning the way Stephen and, and I were. But it was the first time that we had actually tried to do something or contribute to trying to do something that was original. A.J. Antoon, who was a wonderful director, uh, now deceased, unfortunately, uh, directed it. And um, we we had a, a difficult time finding the Rose of Rangoon, the woman. We were doing a lot of auditions, and we actually got to the point of asking people to learn some of the material from the show and bring it in and, you know, sing it for us so we could kind of hear, you know, what that would be like. And one day this woman arrived, not well-known, although she'd been in a couple of uh, reasonably high-profile shows, including one on Broadway, um, and sang two of the songs in ways that we'd never heard before. Uh, they weren't the way the songs were intended to be sung. Uh, the, the different tempos and different sort of meanings to them. And it was so overwhelming that not only did we cast her, but we, um, we uh, actually did the songs the way she did them. She changed the show. It's the only time I've ever seen that in an audition. Uh, it was a woman named Donna Murphy. Uh, a couple of times, uh, Tony Ward winner now. And uh, one of the great, not only actresses, but theatrical minds that's around. So I have to ask, was the show a success? No, the show taught me something else. And that is that audiences know something, and I don't know how they know it. Sing Song of Singapore, which was one of any number of shows that we've had like this, managed to make just enough ticket sales to keep the show afloat. It ran for 15 months, and if we returned any money, it wasn't much. It ran just at exactly the rate you needed to, to break even or lose a little money. And I keep thinking, how do they know? I mean, do people start to order tickets and think, nah, they've sold enough tickets for today and hang up the phone? <laughs> Somehow or other, it was always just exactly in that spot where it wasn't obvious that you needed to close the show, and we've certainly had some of those, and it wasn't ever going to be a success. It was tremendously frustrating. The only thing I can say for it is that the people who came had a very good time. We celebrated a couple of New Year's Eves there and had an absolutely marvelous time. 
so many people speak of it with affection and some of them with unbridled affection that I have to believe that there was an audience out there somewhere of some size, but we never could find it. And uh, the show closed, uh, you know, essentially as a failure, but after a very long run. Hmm. Um, the, the John Lee Beatty had designed the Chinese restaurant and it actually remained. Uh, the, the decoration of the restaurant remained until very recently, and I think some of it may still be in place. Uh, at Irving Plaza, which is the name of the uh, alternative rock venue. Well, you mentioned Donna Murphy early on in her career. Let's talk about another woman that you gave a big break to early in her career when she was still a teenager, Laura mm-hmm. Benanti, who was on this program a couple months ago and, and talked at quite some length about you and your partners giving her the big break in the sound of music when you put her in as the understudy for Rebecca Luker. Then Rebecca Luker went on vacation. Laura filled in for a couple of weeks, and the rest is history. But... How, how did you discover Laura, and why did you have such faith in her? Well, that was the other truly great audition that I ever remember. Uh, Laura came in about a month after graduating from, from high school. She had a, Her mother was a vocal coach and had been a performer and did not want Laura performing as a child. Um, you know, for a lot of people who are on Broadway, 17 is actually rather a ripe old age. Uh, we have kids in Gypsy now who are, you know, 10 and under. But Laura had not been allowed to perform professionally until she was out of high school. It was a family rule. She had done a little performing. I mean, she'd done a lot of performing at the amateur level, but she had never performed professionally. She'd done a little at Paper Mill Playhouse as part of her high school uh, activities. She came in. We were auditioning in the summer uh, for The Sound of Music. She came in and sang and acted for us. And every so often you get one of these auditions that's a total no-brainer. And that was a total no-brainer. I mean, she was a spectacular talent from the minute she walked in until the minute she walked out. She said to me last night, we were at an event together, you know, I had forgotten my shoes and I had these clogs on and I had to say to her, you know, I don't remember your clogs. Because it was one of those transcendental moments where you thought, oh my God, this girl's going to be a star. It was clear. And then when Rebecca Luker eventually left the show, you cast her as the replacement. Yes. I mean, Rebecca is a wonderful performer. I just take nothing away from Rebecca, and we were sorry to lose her, but Laura was an obvious choice to replace her and uh, would have been, you know, as great a Maria as ever there was, I think. Actually, was as great a Maria as ever there was. Curiously enough, she was playing it with Richard Chamberlain, who was a good deal older than she was, like 45 years perhaps older than she was. Uh, and they made a lovely couple. Richard had a theory that you needed a hot and a cold in any couple and that Laura and he were that. Uh, and and uh, they, and they were perfect together. And, of course, she was quite close to the actual age that Maria really was. Captain Von Trapp was a good deal younger, I suspect, than Richard. But uh, but that was – Maria was a kid and, and Laura conveyed that. And so her relationship with the children was a particular kind of relationship. It was like an older sister because she was an older sister. I mean, she was only a couple of years older than uh, uh, the, the young woman playing Liesel. Well, now, of course, you've got her in Gypsy, but in between, you gave her a lead role in Swing mm-hmm. back in around 2000, 2001 in that era. Anytime there's a part. I would hire Laura Bonanti. Well, it seems like you have uh, relationships with a lot of people, both actors and directors as well. Looking down the list of shows you've done, directors like Jerry Zaks, four or five shows with him, uh, Susan Stroman, a couple shows with her, uh, John Doyle, three shows with him. Is 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 that because of relationships or you know their work or you – I mean, what, why do you keep using the same people? Well, 
I, I think it's a variety of things. First of all, there isn't an unlimited pool of people who do work at the big musical level, and the ones who do are, you know, rare and valuable. We we envy the ability to work with other people as well. There are wonderful people with whom we haven't worked, Des Mackinoff. You know, there are lots of people that, that are, are wonderful out there whom we haven't worked with. I think that to some degree, it's been a, 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 a sense of confidence in the people that we've worked with. Jack O'Brien, whom you didn't mention, is another example of somebody who we just think is walks on water. These are people who provide not only a great sense of what will work in the theater and a great sense of innovation and imaginativeness, but they provide leadership, particularly in a director, the kind of leadership that you need to have to bring one of these you know, immense shows to the finish line is not common. And the people who have it, we value essentially above all else. Um, we've worked with Patty Lupone a couple of times, another marvelous example of an immensely talented person, but also one who provides leadership. And it's particularly important, I think, when you're dealing with someone in the cast, because those people are there all the time. And if you have somebody at the top of a cast who is not a great leader, it can create all kinds of problems backstage. I mean, depending on how the ways in which they're not a leader, those it can be a variety of different things. But having somebody like Patty or Harvey Firestein who are real leaders and who have a real point of view that they intend to persuade others of about what it's like to be in a Broadway show and what your obligations are and what's expected of you. Uh, often by example, I don't think they sit down and lecture other professionals on it. But you, if you're in a show with Patty, you know what the standard is and you're not going to let anything get in the way of your delivering it. There's nothing that a general manager or a company manager can do or a stage manager can do to replace that. That has to come from somebody who all the other actors respond to and who they recognize are in the same trench with them. Uh, and, and we've been extraordinarily fortunate in working with people like Patty, Boyd Gaines, Laura now, who's you know grown to a maturity and who provides that kind of leadership as well. It's, it's critically important. So uh, to some degree, I think, with somebody like Jerry Zaks, you look to him because he's an incredibly honest director. He gets at the, uh, gets at the honest moments in the shows in a, in a way that, you know, leaves no doubt and provides a kind of leadership and a kind of clarity of vision that you can't do a show without. On the subject of relationships and working with people, one person we mentioned only in passing, but with whom you're probably closest and you speak all the time, is your own brother, Jack. Mm, absolutely. Who's with Drew Jameson, we should say. Yeah. But tell us about working with, with your brother. Mm. Well, it's my favorite thing. Uh, you know, he and I are incredibly close and share, I think, a sense of what we like in theater, uh, you know, which is everybody has their own taste. And ours is, is quite similar. Um, uh, Jack tends to be a little more creative than I am, I think, and orients himself that way. I tend to be a little more business-oriented, but that's not to say that he that we don't cross over. And, and we've frequently had – we've been through the wars together, I guess, is the, is the way I'd like to say it. And the show that we really went through the wars on and, and, and that you didn't mention up front, but which is, I think, probably from our point of view, not just Jack's in mind, but the whole organization's point of view, the most important show we did is Smokey Joe's Cafe. Because Smokey Joe's was an exercise in travail. 
Uh, It's funny, I was saying to Boyd Gaines last night, you know, when the shows are good, when they're going to be great, they feel great right from the beginning. And in general, we've had a pretty, I wouldn't say easy, but we've had a pretty um, manageable time doing shows like The Producers and Hairspray. Uh, You could tell the greatness was there from the first minute. And I think we could say that of Smokies, too, but it was a very, very difficult journey. In the course of it, we, we, we hired and replaced three directors, plus Jerry Zachs, who finally finished the job, and three choreographers, plus Joey McNeely, who finally finished the job. So we went through basically four iterations of people. Uh, that's very unusual to have to replace directors and choreographers with that kind of frequency. But we came in with a difficult problem on Smokies. And Jack and I were really running that show from from a from a organizational point of view from early on. Um, not to say that Richard and and Mark and Steve didn't do more than a lot. They did, but Jack and I were kind of stuck out in Chicago trying to make it work. Smokies had the huge advantage of a songbook that everybody loved. The music of Lieber and Stoller is part of the culture. I don't know that your listeners will sort of know what that means, but songs like Stand By Me and and uh, Ruby Baby and, and uh, just a, a whole range of wonderful songs. And the trick with it was to make a theatrical evening of it, to make it more than just a collection of songs. Musical reviews are a hard form to do. People don't understand it, and they're generally given short shrift. I don't know that the Times has ever liked a musical review since Ain't Misbehaving. They certainly didn't like Smokey Joe's Cafe. I think the trick is, how do you turn this into something that actually delivers an emotionally satisfying evening to the public? And it isn't easy. Smokey's had the double whammy of being rock and roll music. And at least in the mid-90s when we were working on the show, most theatrical directors didn't respond particularly strongly to rock uh, music and, and I guess also not to rock music of the early 60s, late 50s, which is what this was. So it was a very, very difficult thing to get a director who really cared about that type of music. Jerry Zachs did, and we were talking to him from the beginning, but he, he was uncertain how he wanted to do it, and he, he kept sort of deferring his involvement. Um, and and uh, we would, you know, seek advice from him, but he, he wasn't ready to do it yet. Uh, and we went through a number of iterations of the show just to get to a point where Jerry would say, okay, now I, I really know what I, I need to do. Um, and then, you know, he delivered what I thought was just a superb evening. Of, uh, of of music and dance um, that had audiences beside themselves. I mean, you know, the show was a big hit without um, the Times buying into it. Or And I would say half the reviews were not much good, uh, and they were just wrong. And it ran for more than 2,000 performances. Yep. Yep, the longest-running musical review in Broadway history, and and I think in, in it deservedly so. It really delivered for audiences what a theatrical experience should be. I, you hear me saying this over and over again. For me, a great theatrical experience has to be great at, at an emotional level. It has to make you feel like you've been on an emotional journey and a coherent emotional journey. Just deli- Musicals deliver joy. 
they have the ability to deliver joy. And my brother has often said what's amazing to him about musicals is that you can't pinpoint exactly what's making people joyous. It's this sort of inchoate combination of music and dance and singing and, you know, jokes, whatever it is. It, it delivers a kind of joy to human beings that is not definable as what makes them so difficult to do. Um, but the two of us went through the wars on that project and, you know, had to face replacing people and, and, and all the travail that that involves. And it really created, I think, a bond between us over how the business works and what we need to do and what is expected of you as a producer. But we had, you know, a long family bond before that. I mean, we grew up together and, and I think we were very dear to each other. Plus, he got me into the business, so now I'm waiting for him to figure out how to get me out again. <laughs> I asked you earlier about a project that I, with some choices that I said might seem to be counterintuitive. I want to ask you about another one. The decision to do a commercial production of Theatre de Complicité's mnemonic, which, by any stretch of the imagination, seemed like something that would play maybe at BAM or for a weekend at the Lincoln Center Festival, not a sustained run. How did you come to choose to do that, and what were the challenges? Well, it plays right into what I was just saying. I, 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 I related to mnemonic far more strongly than I relate to most of, you say, that type of theater because it had an emotional tug uh, that a lot of that, you know, a lot of intellectually motivated theater doesn't necessarily have, I was wiped out by mnemonic. I thought that not only was it emotionally thrilling, but it had ideas in it that I had never thought about. That's not to say that people haven't thought about them, but I hadn't thought about the whole idea of seeing human history in terms of flight in terms of people fleeing from things, that that is essentially the thing that has motivated all of the movement of humanity over the course of, uh, of, of history was absolutely fascinating. And then Simon McBurney's way of getting at it, of, uh, in effect, superimposing the story of this ancient warrior discovered in a glacier uh, clearly fleeing from enemies and the, and trying to uncover what his story was from 5,000 years ago over the story of a woman trying to find her father whom she had always thought was dead but now is discovered is alive as she follows his flight through Eastern Europe. Um, it was riveting theater from my point of view. I knew a number of people who came and said, uh, you know, I, I like a lineal story, and this is, you know, not my cup of tea. But for a lot of the audience, uh, I think it was wildly compelling. You know, we knew we weren't going to have Complicite for long. They're an English company. Actually, that company's highly international, and they were going other places. So we only had, I don't know, six or seven weeks with them. And to try to organize a commercial production around a run that short is sort of insane. But... I was so compelled by what that was and what I thought, how I thought audiences would respond that we were able to organize, you know, investment from a number of producers to uh, to make it happen. And we were lucky to be able to get the John Jay Auditorium, which is a terrific 600-seat house that's off-Broadway, uh, and to get the cooperation of Actors' Equity, uh, which wouldn't necessarily let actors, uh, in those days, wouldn't let English actors into... Um, play off Broadway, uh, but they were willing because this was, you know, I think such a special event, and it was going to be relatively brief, and it was clear that American actors couldn't replace these folks. 
that they were willing to let us do it, and we were very grateful for that. And we just put it on. It was a little like Gypsy in the sense of being, you know, sort of an insane piece of producing, but we felt strongly about it, and and uh, and and you know, it was vindicated. That show did make money, uh, and and I've always, you know, been. It's been one of my proudest moments. And we actually produced Mnemonic and the producers at almost exactly the same moment. They were kind so of as the, diverse as you can get. They were the, kind of the yin and yang of theater all at once. Hmm. And I remember sort of going around being giddy about the idea that we had done these two polar opposites within two weeks of each other. We should acknowledge that you and I had the opportunity to work together uh, with you as chairman and then me as the exec- executive director at the O'Neill Center for a few years. And I'm curious a question I probably never asked you during that time, which is, here you are, a very successful producer of both plays and musicals over a long period of time. What drives you to want to then volunteer your time at another organization that's about putting on developing shows and seeing them come to life, since you can do it in your day job? You know, I I, I actually... don't think that what the O'Neill does is exactly what we do in our day job, and 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 to some degree that is what prompted me to do it. Uh, the O'Neill is really the first ten or twenty percent of the journey that a, a project will make to a commercial incarnation. And while it's true we now develop a lot of projects from their inception, my my initial involvement in the O'Neill dated from the early 90s when, for the most part, we were actually moving shows from regional theaters that had developed them and doing commercial uh, versions of them. So the O'Neill actually was a way of getting involved in the, in the um, early stages of a project's development. Also, I thought with the O'Neill, because it did so many things, not just developing plays and musicals, but also educating young uh, theater makers uh, and critics and puppeteers and cabaret artists that it was a very broad canvas to try to make something more of. And I felt all during the time, and we, as you know, the O'Neill really struggled financially for a number of years, that the that that it was worth the candle, that it was that that the O'Neill could be something unique in America. I think of it as America's theater campus. It's a you know it's an eleven acre site, so it's a great big piece of land with four theaters and a couple of other rehearsal spaces and lots of nooks and crannies where people can play at theater. Uh, and and I did believe then and continue to believe now that it's a great great resource. Um, you know, in the last three years, the O'Neill has workshopped plays that have gone on to I think nine or ten significant productions, either at regional theaters or at New York theaters. And it's had until recently, when title of show closed, three shows running on Broadway, uh, Avenue Q in the Heights and title of show. Uh, So uh, it's beginning to, once again, as it did in the 60s and 70s, uh, it's beginning to be uh, a significant generator of theatrical projects that go on to, you know, important lives. And I think that's a, you know, that's a testimony to the artistic teams that we have up there, a testimony to uh, the the O'Neill process, which is 
different, I think, than in a lot of theaters. Um, but it's also a testimony to just the place. If you talk to people who work at the O'Neill, who come to the O'Neill and do original work, they all say the same thing. They all say it's magic. And I think what they mean by that is, first of all, it's a beautiful, beautiful spot right on the water, and, and it's just a lovely spot. Um, but also, for one reason or another, it engenders a kind of concentration that I don't think you can get in New York. Uh, for one reason or another, New York tends to be very distracting. They're, you know, As soon as there's a break, the actors are all on the phone to their agents or whoever, and it is, it is – the process of creation here is regularly interrupted. At the O'Neill, everybody comes and settles in, and, the, and, and because they tend to be in very specific groups working on particular projects, there's a, there's a kind of expectation among all the people there that everybody else will concentrate. That, taken together with the serenity of the site, produces a, a level of work that I don't think you can necessarily analyze. But it's a very high level of work, and, you know, that's something to be treasured. I think we can do even more with the O'Neill than we have in a number of different ways, and we're working very hard to do that. In recent years, the O'Neill has stabilized its finances. We've been uh, in the black, you know, with a surplus the last two years. I expect we will be again this year, although obviously in these financial times it'll be challenging. And we're hoping to be able to expand its activities dramatically. I think it's going to be a very exciting place over the next decade. Well, Tom, as we wrap up, back to your day job, <laughs> you and your co-producers, your producing partners, what should we be looking forward to in the near future from you folks? Well, uh, I think the, the next big project that we have coming on here in New York is Leap of Faith, uh, an original musical uh, based on the Steve Martin movie from many years ago. Uh, with music by Alan Menken and a um, book by Janice Sircone, who wrote the original screenplay, and Glenn Slater, and lyrics by Glenn Slater. And I think it's going to be absolutely spectacular. It's an amazing project. We have seven or eight shows in the pipeline, some of them big and some of them little, but we continue. We, we intend to continue to produce. And if we're wrapping up, I should say, we also have a, a, a pretty sizable presence in Asia, uh, which we haven't talked about, but we are producing Cinderella with Leia Salonga over there as we speak. It's just about to wrap up in Beijing and head for Hong Kong. Uh, and we've produced 42nd Street over there and The Sound of Music over there uh, and The King and I. Um, and we even did a Mandarin language version of I Love You, You're Perfect, Now Change. So we continue to produce uh, steadily in Asia. We're, we're, I think, the only people who do that. And that's been a fascinating and exciting experience as well. Of course, here in New York on Broadway. Indeed. Tom, thanks so much for being with us today on Downstage Center. My pleasure. Thank you for Thank having you. me. Thanks, Tom. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work at the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John von Susten for Downstage Center. That is a wrap, and thank you. The American Theatre Wing encourages all of our podcast fans to share our programs with friends and colleagues, but we remind you that any commercial distribution, commercial use of our programs, or program modification is prohibited without our express permission. We appreciate your cooperation and invite you to contact us with any questions. Thanks for listening.